Hey guys, Juan here. Welcome to the Michael Anthony Uncensored Podcast, where Michael says what you need to hear to build and sustain wealth. In today's podcast, Michael goes to my investment society class to speak to future young investors about human behavior and investing, index funds, and more. Enjoy. I appreciate uh, the invitation to come and speak. Um, I hope you have tenure, if I'm talking from that standpoint. Um, I've been an advisor for over 30 years. Uh, I've been uh, an investor for over 40. So my perspective as an advisor actually comes from being an investor um, prior to being an advisor, and I decided to become an advisor to help people. But I seriously underestimate how important behavior, emotions play in investing, um, biases in investing. Um, that is really your, your blind spots, if you will. Um, I was introduced to the ownership culture when I was about seven. That's the reason why I have, from my grandfather, who was a very big influence in my life when it came to. <coughs> my family came uh, to America from Italy through El Silo during that time, but uh, it was a standpoint where my grandfather was just an avid investor. That, that was his passion. And I don't know any investor, avid investor, that is not a reader, I mean a tremendous reader of information. And understanding financial history is a big part of that. And history in nature, actually. Um, biases, psychology plays a huge role because there's a lot of influences that encourage bad behavior when it comes to investing. Most people don't know what they own or why they own it. Um, committees, generally is the kiss of death in investments because by the time you have to convince the last person, the opportunity is, is lost. Uh, I'll give an example in the state of South Carolina. The very first time they allowed stocks in the retirement plan was 1999 at, when the Dow was quite high. It wasn't in 1980 when the Dow was 900 and was selling below, the whole index was selling below book value. And I mention that because human nature in investing is not a self-correcting problem. It's the reason why things go in cycles. And a lot about successful investing is actually counterintuitive. But the problem is if you don't know your blind spots, then you're not gonna know how to correct them. And there's a lot of biases. Investing is about in essence, cleansing your mind. Every decision is a single decision, but there's so many influences that affect decisions, you try to make less of them. And in today's culture, it's, it's completely backward, and I don't want to sound old <laughs> or like a professor in a way, but there is just certain timeless attributes about investing that just are. And if you understand and have a profound understanding of compound interest and discounted cash flows, then you're going to be smarter than 95% of the people out there. And discounted cash flows and compound interest will drive virtually all of the financial decisions you'll make for the rest of your life. And I say that because a lot of people want high returns. People overpay for excitement. 
They underpay for the mundane, the boring. But it's the mundane and boring that is consistent that drives returns. That's compound interest. What detracts from compound interest is volatility. It is losses. So having a, an understanding about that and finding companies, and I have, I've framed, in essence, my approach over the years from investing from what other successful investors have done. But I have to incorporate it into my own, what I call your own investing self. Everybody has different biases, has different frames, and you have to understand what your weaknesses are. I mean, you really have to have an individual insight to your own behaviors and come to grips with that if you want to inspire to, to be successful at any level when it comes to investing. And I'm probably one of the fiercest critics of our own industry, mainly because what has transpired is from successful investing and the approach that's needed to one where investing now, people don't look at it as ownership. And to me, the further you move away from understanding that you want to own a piece of a business, the harder, I think, it's going to be to be successful. Because essentially, that's what it is. So for me, if I'm going to be an owner, I want someone that's running the company to have skin in the game. Because understand this, corporate remorse is rare because it always is dealing with other people's money. So I want to be aligned with someone that has skin in the game with me. And I'm not talking about giving options just for being there. I'm talking about actual ownership of that company. I want that to be aligned with me. And some of the most successful investments are to align with someone that is growing a business. And growing a business is not in a straight line. And I deal with a lot of first-generation business owners. You know, most of the time, when you ask them, tell me a little bit about when you started the business, uh, everybody said I was crazy. My family, my friends, they all said I was crazy for doing this. Well, investing is not unlike that. To find value, you have to find it where no one else is present. You have to find it where no one else is looking. And there's a term called a margin of safety. And understand that the more decisions that you make, the greater the chance you're going to make a wrong decision. And every wrong decision is going to impede your ability to compound wealth. That's why you shouldn't have to make a lot of decisions. But all the influences want you to make a lot of decisions. I mean, some of the statistics are actually pretty hard. You know, in the 40s and 50s, the average holding period for a company was over eight years, almost a decade. Now, it's less than six months. All these constant decisions distract. You never know how far and how much a company is going to grow. And you leave so much on the table by activity. And activity is to the detriment. Most every successful investor I know doesn't like to pay taxes because taxes is a permanent loss of capital. Permanent loss of capital. And is going 
to an entity that has no accountability. The government doesn't have a balance sheet. They don't have an income statement. They don't care if it's a profit or loss. But in business, you have to. Because what kills a business is when you don't have cash and you run out of cash or you don't have access to capital anymore. That's why business dies. So for me, I like a company that has free cash flow. So I don't do generally many startups or new ideas for that reason. But it's understanding why I'm investing. It's not, my approach is an approach. Doesn't mean it's right for everybody, but there's certain common threads that you need to understand if you want to invest and grow your own wealth. And believe me, now more than ever, I've been invited, as I said, over 30 years, there's probably never a time more important than now for someone to be able to understand this because so many of the safety nets, if you will, pensions, social security, are being eroded. So you have to have your own ability to control your future. You know, I used to say when I did discussions about retirement for younger generations, it was like, you say retirement and your eyes will out the future. But if you understand compound interest, you're gonna to wanna to start now. And one of the biggest influences that you can control is how much you save. You know, there's, there's, we have an instant gratification, instant mentality type culture that actually detracts so much from what successful investing is. And investing is about allocation of capital. And if you're not a good allocator of capital, you're not gonna be a good investor. If you invest in a company where they're not a good allocator of capital, they're not gonna do well. Why is there so many impairing charges now? In the billions, bad decisions. But with that comes opportunity sometime because something is beaten down so much that there is some value there. So if you're wrong, hopefully you're not gonna be impacted as much. When I buy a company, I hope I actually never have to sell it. And one of the reasons is, and I shared it with this with one, is last year was the first year where the amount of dividends that I received from a company that I bought a long time ago is greater in one year than what I originally put in the company. And that's just the compound. But that's time. There, there is no replacement for time and patience and discipline. What most people lack is what's required for successful investing. If you don't have patience, and you don't have discipline. And you say discipline, and I read an article a couple days ago that said, well, we don't want to use discipline in any of our advertisements because it's not fun. Okay, we're not going to use that word. Okay, we're not going to use discipline, but that's what it takes. And patience. You have to wait for, the, for your opportunity. You know, people feel so compelled to have to invest, okay, now, at any point in time, is fine as long as you can find value. But you're not going to find value where everyone else is, is looking. You have to find unique ways. You have to find areas where I can take advantage of where this value is. And I'm going to commit capital. But if I don't feel comfortable, I'm not. And so I like to follow 
good allocators of capital. What do they do? Because it's important to know to be on the same side, but it's also important not to be on the other side. If you have a good allocator of capital and he's selling, you should ask yourself why. Why is he selling? Why is he selling now? So if you look at companies where the founders built the company, and when you talk to people that build companies, that's, that's like a child to them. So when they finally decide to sell, there's got to be a good reason for that. And you can go back and trace areas where market extremes, where good allocators of capital, they sold. But everybody bought because that's what the consensus was. That's where everybody wanted to be. And that's generally not being a good allocator of capital from that standpoint. And truthfully, in today's world, there's not a lot of good stores. You know, one of the challenges and the reason why I like uh, company founders in growing their business is because they're not making short-term decisions. A lot of the big companies, the executives are making short-term decisions, quarter by quarter, because they want that constant market. Okay, that, that's what the industry has become. They want that, quote, consistency. So the games that they play and the accounting. But you can't fake cash. So if you're paying a dividend, okay, a dividend, you have to have the cash. Now, there's general accepted accounting principles that are being used today to mask but you really have to read the filings, which either you like to or not, but if you're gonna buy individual companies, you should, because everything you need to know is there and in the footnotes, because it's what you read there is not what you're gonna hear. It's gonna be completely different. And that's why I pay attention to what people do, not what they say. I wanna know what they're doing. Why are they doing it now? Those are the questions that come up. But it's a situation where so much today they're, they're sort of playing these games where they want the earnings to constantly increase on basis and using accounting techniques to get there. But dividends to me is number one, if I'm investing in a corporation, I want to share in the cash flows. That's why I'm investing. That's why most good investors do that. And it's also because it's an indicator. And any indicator should be reliable. And dividend payments and growth in dividend payments is that indicator. It's an indicator like brown M&Ms and Van Halen. Okay, you know brown M&Ms and Van Halen? As an indicator, anybody? No? Should I tell you? Okay. Van Halen, you know who Van Halen is, right? Yeah. <laughs> Man, I've been way, way too long. Van Halen is a rock group. Okay, Van Halen was a rock group. Okay. Actually, they had a bass player named Michael Anthony. Yeah, that's why you know. Yeah. <laughs> but Van Halen started, they did mega concerts. But then they started doing sort of lesser venues of concerts. So essentially, like most entertainers, they had a wish list that was quite extensive. But in one of the sections of their contract, which was, and it was, the contract was everything they had to have. The stage had to be a certain way, the lighting, it was everything. 
minute detail. But in the part that had under food, they said there had to be a bowl of M&Ms. But no brown ones. The brown ones had to be removed. Okay? Why did they do that? Now, some people say, well, they did it because they're crazy. No, they did it because it was an indicator. Because when they walked in, if they saw a bowl, uh, a bowl of M&Ms and there was brown ones in it, they knew they didn't adhere to all the specifics of the contract. So then they knew they had to start from the beginning and go through because what else didn't they do? And that was an indicator, an immediate indicator. So dividends, in a way, and the growth of dividends means that the company is growing. There has to be a level of confidence. Now, that doesn't mean you have to invest in every company, but if you don't, then you really have to understand that business. Because a lot of companies, when they start out, if they don't have access to capital and they don't manage your cash flows, and that goes from a small business and the problems of managing, uh, managing cash flows to large businesses. And that's what will torpedo a company. So having, for me, I want it because I want the cash flows of the business. And I want the growth of the cash flows. And I want the growth of the cash flows because that's compound. Because whether you invest in a company or you invest in real estate, income is always a positive influence. So if compounding is about consistency, and if losses detract from compounding, you want as many positive influences as possible. So a dividend, income if you invest in a piece of real estate that produces income that's a positive influence always is a positive influence on return and it's the growth that allows compounding so if you invest in a company and it pays three percent and they grow the dividend ten percent per year in year 10 your yield on your original cost is seven percent okay in year 20 it's 18 percent in year 25, it's 30%. And that's why each decision about allocating capital is so important. Because in holding the longevity, I mean, I tell a lot of clients, if you're buying a company, what if they don't price that business for five years? I don't care if they don't. I'll collect my dividends and that'll be fine because I don't intend to sell it because if I'm committing capital, I'm not looking to sell in six months or a year. I'm hoping I don't. I've owned companies, Hershey, Smuckers, for over 30 years. So it's that perspective that I think is lost today because everything is about, I mean, look at it this way. Wall Street has taken the playbook from the casinos. Read a casino management playbook. I have. The same thing. Keep them playing. Okay. Do they want you to own a company for the rest of your life? No. <laughs> Why? Because they make money on the vine. So that's just some of the perspectives in terms of investing that I think is lost, but it's what's going to ensure a greater chance of your success. Because every decision can be a wrong decision. So the lessons you make better. So, uh, I guess I'll make sure I'm going to answer because like I said, I don't want this necessarily to be a If we got about uh, 10 or 
15 more minutes. Let me let me ask one question. I want everybody to, to chime sure. in. You had mentioned that um, you like companies that pay dividends, and there have been some really tremendous studies done. A friend of mine showed me one about 10 years ago where I thought that companies that were non-dividend payers that had high growth rates, if you look at a long period of time, would probably exceed these dividend paying companies in overall performance, and it's not true. No. Dividend paying companies have this consistency that Michael alluded to, and if they're increasing their dividends, like, you know, dividend aristocrats, maybe 40 or 50 companies that have been increasing their dividends every year for 25 years, 25 and then you have years. some over 50 years. Yeah, the performance of those companies is amazing. So it's know. amazing, and it's but there will be times any strategy, and, it, and this it, I'm glad you mentioned that because number one, the majority of market returns is not capital appreciation, it's income and the growth of income. Now, how do I know that to be true in a way? The income from your investments, the dividends, and the growth of dividends is the vast majority of market returns the longer you measure. On a short-term basis is the most volatile. On a one-year basis, the change in value will be over 50% of that return. But it's dramatically mitigated the further you look out. So if you look out 20 years, the change in value is a very small part less than 25% of your return is based on that. So if you eliminate income, then you really better be a good allocator of capital and spot. Because everybody talks about tech companies, but in investing, it's longevity, it's sustainability is what you're after. Because a tech company has to reinvent itself to be relevant, otherwise it's not relevant. Okay, all you have to do is go back in history. All right, well, I'll ask you this. How many of you are using your Blackberry to log on to Friendster? <laughs> and we're in a food shirt. Okay, relevance. But guess what? There was a time when Blackberry was it. They called it Crackberry. Because people were so addicted. But if a company can't reinvent itself and stay relevant, that's why a boring company can grow and you can have enormous wealth. But you have to be patient. It doesn't happen overnight. And that's the reason why there's more value here. Because if a company can't continue to reinvent itself and stay relevant, which also means that if all of its cash flow is going back to go into the company just to stay above water, that's not really an ideal investment for me either. Because if you're in a boring industry, okay, you're not going to necessarily have a lot of competitors. So you can enjoy tremendous returns over a long period of time and grow that company pretty substantially. But yeah, most of the, the, most of the returns comes from income and the growth of income. And a lot of people say, well, yeah, that's boring, especially, you know, not, not to say everybody's the same, but particularly younger group. They want what's hot, okay? Well, what's hot today may not be hot tomorrow. So if a company's not relevant anymore, when are you gonna finally realize that? Yeah, I can Well, sometimes you're not always making money because 
In investing, the money is made in the waiting, not in the transactions, because that's how compound interest works. It's in the waiting. You're not going to get instant gratification. It just doesn't work that way. But that's why people are compelled. I mean, there's over 150 investing biases. That's the reason why after Yahoo bought Mark Cuban's company, Broadcast, which was a disaster, they wrote off the entire billion-dollar purchase, or multi-billion-dollar purchase. So it was because of that decision and how bad it was that when they had an opportunity to invest in Google, they didn't. That's a bias. Every decision should be independent, but it's almost impossible from a human nature standpoint to do that, to black out those decisions. But every allocation of capital should, in of itself, be its own decision on its own merits. And look at it hard, but we're influenced because somebody else is doing it. Okay, there's nothing that brings the worst in financial behavior than the allure of easy money. The allure of easy money makes everybody a train wreck. And to me, I don't care what's after someone's name. I don't care if they have a PhD, they have an MD, JD, or if it's junior. Okay? Because biases is what will impact and detract from opportunity. You just want to think like an owner. Okay? Think like an owner. That's, you know, if you're, if you, you know, buying a $3.50 cup of Starbucks coffee, Okay, over 30 years, that's like $106,000. So people always say, well, how hard is it to save? It's those little indulgences that wreck havoc. It's the reason why Warren Buffett, I'm sure you probably studied Warren Buffett, said on the short term, the value is a voting machine, and the long term, it's a weighing machine. Okay, the good news is they price stocks every day. The bad news is, they price stocks every day, okay? And that's the reason why there's a difference between managing money and making money. You know, someone that makes money has a certain skill set that they developed. They're very good at making money in a particular area. But there's a different skill set in managing that money. It's not the same. And that's why a lot of times it's always better to only have to get wealthy ones. And the more, yes. Michael, let me ask you a question, um, just uh, moving on. With, um, you know, there's so much talk now about people just cleaning their money in index funds versus trying to pick their own stocks. What, what's your recommendation for young people starting out and then you know, what point do you transition or do you transition into saying, well, now let's talk about individual stocks and be more selective and using some of that knowledge you touched on about these companies that uh, pay dividends consistently that kind By and large, I think, well, first off, I want to make a correction about nomenclature. Because I think the industry is it's not really clear. Index investing is index investing. It's not passive. And the reason it's not, quote, passive, and everybody says it's passive, but it's not. Okay, what I do is passive. 
If I own a company for 35 years and never change, that's passive. That's less passive, or more passive, I should say, than an index. An index does change. But an index is a simple strategy. I mean, it is. And you can follow it, and you can invest that way. And, and truthfully, for a large segment of the people, that probably isn't necessarily bad. But here's the thing. No course of action doesn't have its own set of risk. Because then, at some point in time, you have to make a decision of, when I tap that money from an index fund, if the income isn't enough to meet my expectations, then I have to sell. And there's one thing that you don't want to be is a forced seller, ever. And so, unfortunately, then you're at the mercy of future unknown sequence of returns. Because to meet a lifestyle, you have to sell each and every year, regardless of what the market does or the index. So, but the problem is that most, quote, advisors don't really advise in a sense because they, they take what I call the path of least resistance. It's very easy for me to agree with what you want to do. But so much of investing is counterintuitive. I'm always having to tell clients, and then after a period of time, they realize, well, okay, Michael, you, you, know, you just you handle it. But there is a lot of tough love that goes into sometimes a new relationship about investing and learning about investing from that standpoint. So I'm a big believer in individuals understanding ownership and the mentality and developing that mindset of ownership. But that comes with it that you really do have to have an understanding of your own investment self. And if you find that you just can't come to grips with it, then yeah, maybe an, an index fund isn't necessarily bad because you just can't keep yourself from making bad decisions. But know that index doesn't have its own, like I said, set of risks. And that's unfortunately is not what's talked about. And I think a lot of people are going to learn that. You know, because it's easy now to do what everybody's doing, and that's part of the biases. So now there's a big wave to go index, but look at it this way. In 1999, the S&P index was 1,500. In 2007, it was 1,500. Okay, and then it dropped down to 600. So it's like, it, you know, like what Mike Tyson said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. Everybody's a long-term holder until what? Until the first bump. Most people can't deal with what's called the drawdowns. Apple has had over four 80% drawdowns. Amazon had a 95% drawdown in 2000. How many people still would hold it? And the reason that they don't hold it is because they don't know why they own it. So if you don't know why you own something, you're going to be persuaded at an emotional time to get out of it. So if you don't understand what you own or why you own it, then that's, that's a big detraction from being successful. That's good. That's good. You know, another thing that people need to keep in mind, really all of us, especially younger people starting out, let's say you, you know, the market's at an all-time high right now. You start out saying, well, 
I don't have enough money to diversify, so I'm going to pick a few in ETFs or mutual funds, I'm going to put my money in. When the market starts going down, you, my recommendation is don't get spooked out. You need to use the power of compounding that Michael's talking about. Keep putting money aside. I have slides that I use that talk about influences because people have, uh, what people realize is that pricing a business every day, and they say it's a voting machine because anybody can vote, no matter what your IQ is. So what does that mean? It means that the last person to panic prices the business for everybody. Just like the last guy that's euphoria, he prices the business for everybody too. It's just where do you want to buy? Most people can't come to grips with buying something at the low because they think somehow that's a reflection of the value of the business. It's not. So if you don't read what the business does or how they make money or what they own, then yeah, you're going to be influenced out of it just because of fear. And fear is an extremely powerful emotion. That's why governments use it to manipulate people. Fear is a huge influence. Always has been throughout history. Just like rhetoric. Just like manipulation. Manipulation, I mean, I don't want to get necessarily get on the soapbox, but you, people just don't realize how much they are manipulated. And if you just look at history, I mean, Aristotle wrote rhetoric from politics. And a lot of investing is in other areas besides business, human nature. You can learn a lot about investing from monopoly. You can learn a lot about investing from Greek philosophers. You can learn a lot about human nature from the Stoics. You see all the bad behavior over and over again. Just different time, different names, same behavior. So investing is the same in that regard. The problem is it's counterintuitive. Most people want to invest when? Why? When they feel good. But the studies show, it's proven. The higher the expectations, the, higher, the better that people feel, the markets tend to be overvalued. But it's always the inverse. People have very little cash at market tops and a lot of cash at market bottoms. It's always been that way, human nature. So that's, you have to know what your strengths are, you have to know what your blind spots are. And if you don't, then that's gonna be really hard. And it, it, it's, it's training your mind. It's a constant training, critical thinking. Because it's not everything. When I first got in the industry, it was kind of funny to me because you got a lot of the analysts, they would always downgrade a stock at the very bottom. And that's when the corporate executives were buying it. But they were telling you to sell it. And then they want you to buy it when it's way up. And it's all those influences that have just been magnified over the years. And so, you know, there was a test done called the marshmallow test. The marshmallow test was they had a bunch of young kids and they gave them a marshmallow. One marshmallow. And then they said, when I come back, if that marshmallow is still here, I'm going to give you two. So they left. Okay? Some kids... Instant gratification. They just didn't matter if they were going to get two later. They wanted that one marshmallow. So 
About 30 years later after the study, they analyzed the kids that had no impulse control, and by and large, they didn't do fair as well as the ones that had impulse control. And investing's like that. You know, a lot of times it's no impulse control. And it's the same with savings. You know, your biggest advantage at your age is the ability to save and invest. But compound interest doesn't show itself until much, much later. And that's why people get bored with it. I want to try to get it quick. And that's when you fall into the, into the bad behavior. It's much easier to save more. And that's your biggest hour at, at your age. Very good. We got any other questions? Oh, come on, there's got to be some. Yeah. <laughs> Did you read The Power of Habit? Yeah. That's the Power of Habit. And um, also, there, there's a book that has nothing necessarily to do with investing, but it does in terms of yourself, and that's called Deep Survival. Why some people survive and some don't. Yeah. What do you think about cryptocurrency? <laughs> I, was, well, I thought that that would be a, a, a question. That's a, that's a really interesting topic. Um, that's an interesting topic and it goes back to is there a way for me to adhere to my my approach and invest now there's a lot of people that in the investment world that just said okay it's bubble you know it's not real whatever so I don't particularly there's no way to measure intrinsic value for me in that there just isn't because anything that doesn't have cash flow, you have to realize, and this goes with companies, is only worth what someone else is going to pay you for. It's that simple. If they want to pay you more, they'll pay you more. If they don't want to pay you more, they won't. And there's no underlying intrinsic value in that way. So I bypass that part of it, but I'm always on the lookout for a way that I can adhere to my intrinsic value and still capitalize on something that I think um, is, you never know what something's gonna do. Just like a company. You'll be surprised sometimes companies, so you don't know. And there's, there's, a, there's what's called Met, Metcalf's Law. Metcalf's Law has to do with networks. So it's sort of like a phone. If you're the only one with a phone, that network isn't really worth much, is it? You talk to yourself. But the more people that have phones, the more valuable the network. So to make a long story short, I found a company that was in the investment business. They managed mutual funds. And the company was selling for the cash on the balance sheet. They had no debt. You were actually getting your office building in San Antonio for free. Okay, that's bad. But the CEO of the company took $17 million of the company corporate money and invested in a blockchain company in Iceland. So, and Juan knows this because he was there, when I talked I talk with the CEO and I asked him several questions about why he made the purchase and he said simply it was allocation of capital. So I did it. I wanted to put some money in it. I thought it was an opportunity. So, after talking with him, and the company was worth essentially with the assets they had plus the balance sheet. If it doesn't work, I still have a business that's generating cash flow. 
And believe it or not, the company, I mean, it was small, but it paid the dividend. Okay? So, I adhere to my, my approach, found a way to do it. It may not always be a way to do it, but as Juan knows, when I talk to him about the company, I've already made six times my money in two and a half months. Now, that's going to fluctuate a lot. But I, I mean, I own it for the long term. The company I told you about that the dividend is more than what I originally put in the company. At one time, I was up 50 times my money. I'll be up 30 times my money. It just it varies. But I don't have any interest in selling it because they're growing their dividend. But find a strategy that you know is going to coincide with your behavior. It's going to take some soul searching. And then you're going to come to the conclusion that you can adhere to it or not. Because any strategy that you decide to take, if it's based on sound practices, the key is staying with it. Where people get in trouble is when they change it. Oh, uh, well, this is not working this year, so I'm going to do something else. Okay, that's not going to work. Okay, you either stick with it or don't do it at all. <coughs> that's key. So I'm always, I don't dismiss it. It's not, I mean, a lot in the investment world dismissed it. And who knows what can happen with it. I don't know that. But my, my job, or what I wanted to do, is find a way that I can take advantage of it and still adhere to what my principles are from investing. And sometimes you're lucky. I mean, luck isn't necessarily measurable, but it does play a part. So the fact that other people discovered it later, well, I mean, yeah. work, but I mean, it is some luck with it, too. Michael, we've got, oh, a, sorry. Uh, okay. we've got a class coming in here. Oh, okay. So we greatly appreciate it. Oh, sure.